Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Yes, friends, we are not talking about Obi-Wan Kenobi. In fact, we are talking about the X-Men. What's it going to be like with the X-Men coming into the MCU? What are the ethical questions it's going to raise? We have a special guest with us, Miles Stokes of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, along with myself and Paul Hoppy. All that and more after a commercial break we have no control over. Welcome back. I'm your host, Matthew Fox. I use they-them pronouns. I'm joined, I'm joined, as I often am, for discussions of all things ethical and superhero radical. Uh, Mr. Paul Hoppy. Paul, how are you doing today? I am doing quite well. Thank you. I am the cool. not-so-special guest today, which is totally yeah. fine with me. I'm cool with <laughs> Well, you are still not the official co-host. You're just the, like, 75% of the time the guest. Exactly. Um, exactly. We do have a special guest, though. Uh, many of you heard me talk about the uh, sort of stint I did on the Marvel Movie Minute podcast where we talked about Thor. I uh, had a great time on that and got to meet a lot of wonderful people, including Miles Stokes. Miles and his partner Jay do the uh, Miles – Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, uh, which is X-Plane, the X-Men. Uh, it's a great podcast, and after talking with Miles on that one, I knew I wanted to get him on to get to talk about X-Men. So, Miles, so good to have you with us. Yes, thank you both so much for having me on. I have been looking forward to this episode, also with some trepidation. I'm an expert on X-Men. <laughs> Ethics, I mean, you know, I try, but uh, but we'll see how this goes. I'm psyched. I mean, I took a couple of courses in grad school 20 years ago. Paul just is opinionated, so like, yeah. we don't need any level of expertise here. <laughs> I, I deny actually having ethical opinions in quotes, so, you know, it's, right. I, think we're, I think we're good here. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Especially because I, I would actually even say that you probably have more expertise than you think because I do know of a number of ethics professors who basically have talked about the X-Men sort of canon as being, for all intents and purposes, an, a, a, a textbook in ethics in that they often kind of dive into the uh, you know questions of right and wrong and how do you use your powers and what's the role of government. And my sense is, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, X-Men especially – if you're interested in like superhero comics that dive into those kind of real-world justice issues, X-Men's a good place to start. Uh, I completely agree, yeah. Uh, social justice and all the issues around it have been, for, have been foremost in the X-Men. I'm not going to say exactly since the start, because I think at the start, Stan Lee just couldn't figure out any more origins for superheroes, so he just decided to have some who were born with them. But from, uh -huh. from very early on, <laughs> I fair. mean, yeah. X-Men was always a metaphor for oppressed minorities and mm -hmm. how the world interacts with them and how they interact with the world. And yeah, you're totally right. There are so many ethical questions that come up around that and so many conflicting perspectives that are presented around that, in addition to all the punching and explosions. Right. Well, and I want to get into that. Let's just start with backing up a bit. Talk a little bit about yourself and how you got into X-Men and how it became from just something you were kind of fond of to this podcast that you've been uh, uh, doing for a while now. Yeah, so I grew up in the X-Men. One of my first memories was my dad reading me X-Factor number four as a bedtime story. That was, I think, uh, either the first or second appearance of the Alliance of Evil, Apocalypse's original, mostly forgotten henchman. And so that was just sort of there for me. And I think, um, you know, initially they were exciting, colorful characters with varied powers and varied origins. And then, you know, when I was around 10 years old, the 90s animated series came out, which, of course, was immensely exciting for any child or adult, for that matter. And so my fandom just kept going and kept going. And uh, Jay Edidin, who I do the podcast with, we've known each other since we were kids. And X-Men was mm -hmm. something we bonded over. And so as we started talking more about it, I think we started looking more into more, more in depth into what those comics meant, not just like as entertainment, but philosophically as well. 
And so, yeah, back in 2014, I believe, we started Jan Miles Explain the X-Men um, with the idea of explaining an incredibly complicated and convoluted <laughs> continuity uh, so that it could be a little more approachable for people. And now that we're more than 350 episodes into our show, I'm not sure that we're still successful because now you, there's a lot mm-hmm. of backstory in the thing that explains the backstory. But, you know, we try. Yeah, I mean, 350, that's still probably maybe, what, 10% of all the different, like, issues of, like, between, like, X-Men themselves versus each of them having their own individual runs. Like, there's got to be thousands of issues of comics at this point. Oh, thousands and thousands, yeah. I think we've made it from 1963 to 1997 in our coverage. Uh, wow. Which is a lot, but then again, you know, there were more and more X-Books, the various spinoffs and such, as time went on. So I think at this point we're covering the various X-Comics at roughly the same rate in which they came out, which means I don't think we'll ever oh. actually catch up. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> and, and so your focus is specifically the comics themselves, or do you often kind of like do kind of forays into X-Men on screen and things like that? For the most part, we cover the comics. I think the comics are our first love, and that's also mm-hmm. just where most of the content is because, like you For said, sure. thousands and thousands of issues. But, you know, we'll do a review of movies as they come out, or sometimes we'll talk about the different animated series or live-action series. We've, we've got a couple of those now as well. Uh, we just sort of, you know, go back and forth. Sometimes we'll talk to writers or artists um, or other ex— I hesitate to use the term ex-scholars, but ex-scholars. <laughs> Just the X, not the EX is the key there. Right. Uh, I mean, you know, they could be both. If, if they <laughs> sure. focus on X-Men and then they stop, they could be an XX scholar. Oh, that's true. That's mm-hmm. true. Paul, what about yourself? I think you've talked about watching the show as a kid, right? No. Uh, I had some comics as a kid, actually. I had mm. um, some, like, particularly Nightcrawler. I really like Nightcrawler for whatever reason, you know. And um, I didn't actually see any X-Men on screen until the first X-Men movie, which I believe was 2000, right? Uh, I and so. I remember right. I went with our friend Logan, who yep. was not born Logan, right? Who chose the name Logan, <laughs> which is fantastic. I support that. I always did. But, um, well, maybe occasionally I, I said some things that looking back, I'm like, oh, that was kind of crappy. But moving uh, quick, yeah. quick self-promotional aside, he and I uh, did an episode on the movie Logan and why yeah. that character means so much to him and why that name means so much to him. So way back in the archives, but go right, on. Right, <laughs> exactly. And, and Wolverine was always their favorite character. And... I actually went to see the X-Men movie with Logan, and I remember being like, oh, this is really good. And Logan was like, ah, oh, they totally nerfed Rogue and this and that and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know? I mean, it was basically Wolverine and the X-Men, which is an animated series that I really enjoy. And oddly, I think, um, gives Cyclops a little bit more character development than a lot of the other things, which I thought was cool. But, uh, but yeah, I, I saw that movie, and then the second one I liked a lot, and then the third one also happened uh and then my wife who was my girlfriend at the time uh got me to watch the animated series and we watched first the 90s series which i loved and then we watched uh x-men evolutions which i also really enjoyed and um you know it's that's i think more of them like as teenagers or something like that i believe mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. um and then there's x-men and, and um or wolverine and the x-men and all the movies Throughout the movies, you know, I would say they're of various quality levels in terms of <laughs> story and how well they execute on that. But throughout all of them, I've always just really loved the characters and mm-hmm. both how much characterization there is, how much variety there is. Um, and I think one of the th- reasons that the series are so good, I mean, aside just I love animation and, and I enjoy that a lot, I think a series really has time to delve into 
so many different characters. And one of the things where like the third X-Men movie I think fell down was that it tried to introduce so many characters, which you kind of need to do with the X-Men to really fully populate the world. But like in a two hour movie, it's just hard to really do them all justice, you know? So I think uh, the series were, that was, the series was where I felt like I really got the X-Men. Whereas the first couple movies were the ones where I was like introduced to them. I was like, oh, I, I like this, you know. I like yeah. this idea of kind of a coherent superhero origin story. Um, as opposed to like, well, this one did this and this one's born on this planet. And this, you know, uh, this is this science experiment. And that's, you know, there's a lot fewer science experiments here. Although there is, um, what's his name? Uh, Mr. Sinister, right? Um, <laughs> he does love his science, his terrible, yeah. terrible science. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's not not a thing, but it's not the main focus. Right. Yeah, and my, my background with it was a little bit like yours, although I didn't read the comic books. Growing up, I like I liked Batman. I liked Superman. I was not a comic book person, though, and, and until some of the movies brought me in. And, and this one was definitely one of the big ones. And I remember the first X-Men movie, I mean. And I remember at first, at first my thought was like, wait, Patrick Stewart's in this? Like, he's a real actor. What's going on here? <laughs> And and then I remember going in to see it, and I was a student. I was a, someone who loved history. I wanted things based in the real world. Mm. I wanted things about real world issues. So now you're telling me you're showing me a story about the Holocaust, about like this right. real world thing, and 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 and. It, for me, it felt like what I loved about science fiction. You know, science fiction to me was always let's take a real issue, but then use something to play with it a bit to to look at the issue in a new light. And so when this movie basically said, okay, let's take the issue of oppressed groups who feel like, you know, the different responses and how does privilege play in and all these things and tell it through this light and, by the way, wrap it up in this major historical event – I was sold. And and to me, ever since, I think the X-Men have been one of my favorite parts of the, the kind of superhero world b- because I think the character is very much so, but also just because of how much it's grounded in these stories that matter for us in our own world. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think that's something Marvel's always done pretty well, but just by virtue of exactly what you mentioned, like this focal character, Magneto, being tied to one of the most significant events in history, like right. that's a link that, you know... That's a link you don't always get. Um, it's also interesting, you know, as the franchise continues to go on and continues to go on and continues to go on, the fact that Magneto as a character almost ages out of that. How do we how do we deal with that if we come to the him in the new movies or whatever? Anyway, we'll get That's to that. Definitely I'm sure. a topic I yeah. want to talk about. Oh yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, that wasn't always his backstory, though. Correct. Like, uh, when did that? Right, yeah. So that was introduced, um, I believe, uh, by Chris Claremont, who introduced so many aspects of the X-Men. He wrote the book for 17 years in his Mm. first run and has come back a couple times since. Um, Yeah, initially, Magneto was just sort of the bad guy. He wanted to do bad things. He wanted mutants to win because he was a mutant. And so that that humanization of Magneto, um, I think X-Men number 150 uh was one of the issues where that really came into play he almost accidentally kills kitty pride mm. who he realizes is jewish he he mentions he himself as a holocaust survivor uh, i may be forgetting the exact issue number but mm-hmm. yeah really from then on he became this fascinating morally gray sympathetic character who nonetheless also did bad things but like you kind of got it um right. the first t-shirt my podcast ever sold just has magneto's helmet and said not magneto was right but magneto made some valid points <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah yeah magneto made some valid points that's that's a very yeah. good way of putting it <laughs> yeah i mean i think i think it was one of the first episodes we did on this podcast way way back before we understood things like sound equipment and editing <laughs> um, but um you know we talked about how 
from an ethical perspective, villains are often some of the most fascinating. And we got into this question of villains who, as you said, raised some interesting points. And to me, Magneto was always kind of the king of that hill, you know, in terms of the person who and, – and Grant, I think we can talk about how in the movie – in the comics, I get the sense this isn't always the case. In the movies, it feels like in most of his movies, the first half of the movie, they write him as this very sympathetic character who's been very oppressed and so you understand why he's doing what he's doing and it makes a lot of sense. And then the writers go, oh, wait, but he's supposed to be a villain. Yes. Yeah. And and it kind of falls apart. It's always frustrating because I always feel like the first half of a movie Magneto is in that same kind of category to me of like a Killmonger or some others where I'm like, I I think you maybe our hero should listen to this person somewhat. Yeah. I will say I feel like they said, did the same thing with Killmonger in the third act a little bit, you know. Also it, fair. It's also kind fair. of just like a movie structuring like, but wait, this is the villain. Let's have them go too far over the line to remind you you're supposed to be rooting for the hero. And like, yes, this person had some valid points, but that's not the way we go about things. Which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you could, you, you could call like centrist propaganda maybe. I don't know, but... No, that that's a really good point. I, I also think of um, in Falcon and Winter Soldier. Mm-hmm. I don't remember her name, but the um, villain in that who Carly. Like, uh, what? Sorry, Carly. Carly. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah I was y- I was literally thinking of that as I was saying <laughs> what I was saying. Yeah, like because I mean she's do she's making good point after good point. And yes, her methods are a little questionable, but it's really not until the plot just has her do horrible things suddenly that you're like, oh, well, I guess she is a villain. And right. yeah, it almost yeah. seems like uh, so many of these properties are are afraid to commit to a truly progressive or even radical perspective, even if they sort of toy with it for the sake of the narrative, for the sake of an engaging right. narrative initially. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I always thought was very fascinating about at least the way I see the Professor X Magneto story, and I don't know if this is just because this is told – I think especially in the kind of James McAvoy Fassbender versions on screen, but tell me how much this is in the comics, is it's not just that these two have different perspectives. It's that it, it's the question of how much privilege do you have when you're dealing with oppression, you know, because it's that like for me, I've always said being disabled, you know, makes my life harder. I'm transgender and I'm queer, which makes my life harder. But I'm also white. I'm American. I have an awful lot of privilege. And I've always known like, okay, my disability sucks, but I'm going to have basic health care, you know, things like that. And, you know, I always got the sense Professor X is that same kind of a way of, yes, he sees the way that the world is going to treat him badly because he's a mutant, but everything else in his life is good enough that he, he, he can afford to trust people and to say we should trust them, we should give them another chance. Whereas Magneto really hasn't had that chance. And and to me, there really is a very, di- you know, the, the, the fundamental difference in their backgrounds there. Is that something you see in the comics a lot, that kind of the privilege between the two of them being a real difference? I think it is in a lot of ways, yeah. Um, and it, it really does all come back to the trauma Magneto has endured that Professor X has not had anything quite comparable. Like, yes, Professor X has been through some bad stuff, but Magneto watched his family die in the Holocaust. Magneto... Right had his watched his daughter die in front of him as an angry mob prevented him from saving her like he's been through some heavy heavy stuff and so he's seen how bad it can get he's seen what will happen if you let in the case of the marvel universe the bigotry of humans run unchecked against mutants and he feels like the only real way to protect his people because when it comes down to it magneto's highest priority is always to protect his people right he sees the only way of doing that as being to 
whether or not he's proactively attacking, to at the very least fight back. He sees Xavier as as naive, that perspective as just being one that's not ever going to work because Xavier, in Magneto's eyes, gives humans too much credit. He has too much faith in them. Yeah, I would I would latch onto that word perspective, kind of that more than more than privilege, because like I feel like Magneto has so much power that mm-hmm. at this point, you know, in whatever you want to call the current timeline, but like you know, decades post Holocaust, right? Magneto's no longer under the boot of the Nazis, but he was, right? He was. Yeah. He um, there's this great backstory comic of Magneto, and there's this one shot where they pause it with a bunch, like there's a bunch of Nazis shooting at him and his family. And you see a frame with all the bullets hanging there, like the way, you know, they would be in the future, but he doesn't have his powers yet. And basically everybody dies, you know, and yeah. he, oh, wow. he has that. Yeah. It's really power. Like I physically feel something thinking about it now, you know? Um, but it's like, he's had that perspective of being in that spot and seeing that. Whereas, you know, Charles hasn't really had them, like, come for him. He hasn't really had them come yeah. for his family the same way. And so when they do for the mutants later, it's like, it's it's not in his formative days, right? It's like he's kind of already, I think, formed his perspective. And he's like, no, no, it'll be fine. Um, you know, I mean, on the role of government, I think it's like kind of like building robots to kill people they don't like. And, like, when you're Charles, like, maybe you should see that and be like, this is... This is literally what the government's doing now, you know, and it doesn't mean you necessarily have to go like full Magneto. But I I think because his formative years, he kind of, you know, on the one hand, like he could pass, right? Like in terms of his powers were invisible and like also just he he didn't have to deal with Nazis like that. I would imagine that that would have a big effect on on someone's worldview. Mm hmm. Uh, at the same time, though, like, it's—I do want to give Xavier some credit here. Like, it, it can be easy to see him as naive, but the comics have also really gone out of their way to show that Magneto's, Magneto's own trauma, Magneto's own perspective from right. that trauma, can have him go too far. And sometimes mm-hmm. that's just straight-up character assassination, kind of like what we were just talking right. about. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it, uh, Matthew, you mentioned X—or I think it was even mentioned, mentioned X-Men like 3. X3. Yeah. Oh, was, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, I mean, and in that, they certainly, like, just go full-on fascist with Magneto. Yeah. It's, it's terrible. But, you know, the fact is that anger uh, has caused him to do some genuinely terrible things to the point where they have de-aged the character to give him a clean slate, not once but oh, twice in, wow. in continuity. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, you know, Xavier has certainly met with his own successes in finding ways for humans and mutants to, to live in peace. Um, so I... I, I like that the comics don't ever fully go in one direction or the other. Like, they've generally, at least with most writers, been pretty clear. Like, not that, oh, both sides have good points and the answer somewhere in the middle, because that is a trap right there. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> but just, <laughs> really that, you know, individuals are inherently subjective and inherently flawed, and no one person is going to have, like, the exact right answer for fixing things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. One thing that I, I, I've always kind of thought about it, it seems like if you look just from, and granted, th- this is not a one-time change. This happens in cycles. But in the last, like, five, ten years or so, it definitely feels like, in, in American society at least, the Overton window of, like, should we all just be peacefully protesting or should there be some level of fighting back, you know, in terms of things like BLM or, or ACT UP from, from more of our childhoods or things like that, um, has shifted a lot more away from the kind of, like, Kumbaya, you know, nonviolence is always the better answer. Mm-hmm. And, and I always thought it kind of 
like my sense is it seems like kind of like society is moving almost more towards like Magneto becomes a little bit more of a hero in part because of the overture window of society moves. Do you think that's accurate? Have you, or have you seen the comics reflect that kind of shift at all in the last couple of years? So the comics have done some very interesting things in the last couple of years. Um, are the two of you familiar with the current Krakoan era? I am a little bit, mostly because of uh, um, yeah. our buddies on the Hype is My Superpower uh, podcast, another great podcast. They do uh, comics. They're doing kind of like modern day stuff. Uh, but uh, they have really been diving deep into that. So they talk about it a lot, and I had them on to talk about it. So I know a little bit about it. I think, Paul, I don't know how much you have followed of it. It seems like maybe less. Yeah, le- less of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the, the, word. <laughs> Sorry. The, the very short version then. Um, so... Oh, man, how do I do this without, like, decades of continuity? So, <laughs> as of a couple years ago, a writer named Jonathan Hickman did two interlocking miniseries, miniseries, miniseries called House of X and Powers of Ten. And what that revealed was that in the recent past, uh, Professor Xavier and Magneto, uh, and a couple other important characters who I won't go into because that gets too complicated, um, basically took over an island called Krakoa, and created a mutant separatist utopia that only mutants could go to and that weren't, you know, philosophically or militarily opposed to the rest of the human world, but had decided, you know, what we need to do for our people is to have our own space where we can keep ourselves and each other safe, where we can thrive, and where we don't have to limit ourselves based on the bigotries of those around us. And so that's been that's been the paradigm for a couple of years now, and it has been fascinating. Mm. And one of the things I appreciated about it, as much as it's incredibly heartwarming to see these characters that we enjoy and we identify with finally getting a win, because of course the X-Men have been through, like all their famous stories are about terrible things happening to mutants. Yeah. Those are the best stories usually. But in this case, that's not what's going on. I mean, you know, there are villains and stuff and bad things happen, sure. But the the baseline, the status quo is a very positive one for mutants. But I appreciated that when that paradigm was introduced, Hickman was seemed pretty deliberate in making it also a little alienating, in reminding the reader, mm-hmm. like, hey, you know, great things are happening for mutants, but you don't really feel like you're necessarily one of them. And so mm-hmm. it was an interesting exercise to read that and to be like, okay, I feel uh, societal compersion for, for this population, but I'm not part of it. And that feels a little weird. And what do I think about that? And, and how do I deal with that? How do I deal with feeling a little excluded from this thing? Because I'm not part of the oppressed demographic that's finally getting a win. And so that has just been so, just so philosophically rich the entire oh, sure. time. How is um, Krakoa, like, how is that different from Genosha? Is it more, is it because Xavier is involved and it's... Oh, that's that's a great question, yeah. Um, because, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, for a while, Genosha was uh, a mutant paradise run by Magneto until it got blown up by Sentinels in Grant Morrison's run. Okay. Um, <laughs> it was a great scene, but oof, millions yeah, of deaths. Yeah. So one, one distinction is, yeah, this is Xavier and Magneto together, along mm-hmm. with some other perspectives. Um, it also, they grant amnesty to all villains. So, Mm. like, initially, Apocalypse is a member of their (laughs) decision-making council. Sinister is a member. Mystique is a member. Uh, Also, some people who are less worrisome. But, um, so that's part of it. It's basically, any mutant is welcome. You get amnesty. Mm. I mean, if you screw up really bad again, then we're going to have to do something. Right, right, right. But your past um, is kind of forgiven, blank slate. Yes, 
the other thing is that it is specifically exclusionary because it's very appealing, because it is very utopian. Hmm. And the way the mutants have dealt with the rest of the world is they've used their plant-based technology on Krakoa, long story, to create these drugs that, like, can assist with mental illness, that can assist with longevity, that can cure diseases, that sort of thing. And they just trade them to humanity in exchange for, well, money, but also for acceptance. Right. The big thing is that they've cured death just for mutants. Oh, wow. They mm-hmm. they have a method of resurrecting any mutant mm. to a state very shortly before they died. Mm. And so that makes it even more utopian, but it also really emphasizes that split between right. mutants and not mutants. Yeah. Right. Which, which I think is a very interesting one because and I, I, I'm glad we're talking about this because I want to kind of get us away from Magneto – um, since I think a lot of times the ethical conversation is I mean, there's just so much to talk about with Magneto and mm-hmm. Presser X. Um, and I think that that's such an interesting thing because, you know, to me, we were kind of getting into this at the very beginning. Most of the heroes are normal people like us. They just have this, they got bit by a spider or they, you know, or maybe they're from a different planet. But, you know, whereas the X-Men are this literal whole other race of people. Um, what are some of the other ethical questions you think that, that, like, because I, I don't think we're going to go quite that far in the MCU yet. I think that's going to be just a little bit much to explain. <laughs> but, like, what are some other interesting questions like this you could, that you could see coming up um, that, that are kind of big in, in the X-Men stories to begin with that you could see coming into the MCU? Oh, man, that's a, that's a, that's a big and excellent question. <laughs> um, so one of the ways that the MCU is so different from, from comics is that Mutants were part of the comics from very early on in the Silver Age. You know, they showed up a couple years after the Fantastic Four, say, um, you know, after the Avengers. In the MCU, we now have decades of established history that did not include mutants. Mutants will inherently be newcomers to the MCU whenever they show up, whether it's from an alternate universe or mutations that just begin to happen or whatever. And so with that, you kind of lose the whole metaphor of... And you could be a mutant. Anyone you know could be a mutant. Like, these are maybe the people that you live near. What do you do if you find out that someone you love is a mutant? Does that change the way you look at them? What do you do if right. you yourself are, are, are found to be a mutant? Like, does that change the way you look at yourself? Do you lose your place in society in some ways? That's one of the reasons I've been skeptical that mutants could be integrated into the MCU in a way that jives with the comics. Because to me, that's just so inherent. You also, I know we said we weren't going to talk about Magneto as much, but you also lose Magneto's connection to the Holocaust if mutants weren't around right. during World War II. Right. So I, I think, like, you really you need to keep, to have the X-Men feel like the X-Men, to have mutants feel like mutants, you need to keep that oppressed minority uh, parallel in some capacity. Right. But you also need to keep sort of the universality of, of mutants, the fact that anyone could be one, which is something the Krakoan era has kind of, like, dealt with, like, the fact that now they're separatists, that's weird. That's different. That's never right. been the case. Yeah, because I think sometimes sometimes some of the stuff that I read, it feels like, especially now that we're playing with the multiverse, all the multiverse stuff and, and uh, pan-dimensional things, that, like, what might happen is something where, like, Wolverine becomes a part of this universe, as does, like, Cyclops and Jean Grey. But, like, you know, individual characters who are X-Men come over into the MCU but sort of like the existence of mutants doesn't become the thing in the MCU. And it sounds like, and I think I would agree, but it just to clarify, it sounds like what you're saying is like that would feel really kind of against the spirit of what the, this whole thing is about. 
I think I think it would be, yeah. And I mean, I know Paul, you've seen you mentioned being pretty familiar with with the movies. Like, I don't know, do you do you see a way that you could take kind of what worked in the movies and transplant that into the MCU or is the MCU just too different and different for that to work? I think it's tough. I I mean, I think you mentioned, you know, there are decades now of established history, right? It's been 14 years since like the first movie, right? But Mm -hmm. in the timeline, it's been more like 20 something, right? So, um, or close to it anyway. So it's, it's a little tough and, you know, and then they also show decades before, right? They show things that happen. Like, is there a way for mutants to have always been around, but like, really not known because some mind thing like i don't know like that feels like it might be a bit much but on the other hand i i do feel like you lose so much by i mean if you just have like a few mutants come through like some dimensional portal or something it's like oh they're from another universe it's like that feels like okay you get those characters but you don't really get the feel of the x-men right Mm -hmm. you don't yeah you don't get get that sense of that being part of the fabric of the world of, you know, the species literally mutating and, and developing a new subspecies, uh, subspecies, right? What is it? Homo yeah. sapiens superioris or something like that? Or- uh, Homo sapiens superior or Homo superior. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I, and I think that that's a fascinating story and that's, that's very interesting. And can you introduce that without changing just the whole dynamic of the MCU? I don't know. Um, Agents yeah. of S.H.I.E.L.D. kind of like tried to parallel it, right, with the sort of Inhumans arc, um, which then I don't even know how that fit with the Inhumans show, which I don't even know how that fit with our existence on Earth and actually being a thing. But, um, but yeah, it, I, I don't see an easy answer for it, you know. I mean, when, when you mention Krakoa, like, I'm like, is there a way that maybe that has existed and like nobody knew about it? And you do like sort of a version of it where it's like, oh yeah, this has been a thing. And like, but yeah, but then it's like, how was that not a whole big deal? Like all the time. So Mm -hmm. um, I, I I don't really see a way like, I don't know, maybe, maybe just make another, use another universe within the MCU MCU. And have them maybe fold into each other or something. I, I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. although I will say the global population has gone through a lot of trauma in terms of, <laughs> you know, so many people dying and then they're coming back. And then now what if you have like multiple dimensions folding onto each other? I don't know. It could, right. you, you could have issues. I mean, <laughs> it's a bit much. Ha- has everybody here seen um, Multiverse of Madness? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. In some ways, I, I liked that they had, you know, the Patrick Stewart Professor X in that because... To me, that told me that what we're kind of talking about there, that that, that, that is one possibility, that it may well be that they're going to say that actually, yes, there is a different universe in which the mutants have been there all along, and we're going to start to have those universes colliding in some ways. Because, I mean, granted, the the X-Men movies have not been across the board the best. (laughs) Um, Oscar Isaac, I think we're seeing just what a good actor he is. I don't (laughs) think he was used to his best uh, in in his Egyptian uh, uh, main. Um, but, uh, or at least I should say, his return to Egypt in the MCU has been much better than his right. first foray. Yes. Um, um, but like, yeah, and yeah, to me, that would feel like it would make much more sense and to have, like, I don't really want to give up all of that. You know, I think there was some fantastic storytelling that happened on screen. Um so yeah, it's kind of interesting to think about it. What what what's this going to look like? I think I love these characters, but I definitely have some trepidation about it. Mm-hmm. 
and you also run into the weirdness of mutants are hated and feared because of their strange powers, but wait a minute, in the MCU already, like, how many different people with how many strange powers do we already have before mutants are even on the scene? And that's something the comics never really fully understood how to deal with either, like, mm-hmm. Why does the public love the Fantastic Four but hate the X-Men, even though their powers are the same level of strange? I think I think you could make an argument for, well, it's because we all worry that maybe our children would be would suddenly become mutants, and then what would we do? But I don't know. If, like, my kid became Mr. Fantastic, that, that'd be kind of cool, <laughs> right. you know? Maybe he could be, like, a little less cold and aloof than Reed Richards, but aside from that... So it's, uh... I don't know. It's one of those things where I think the kind of uh, heightened, bombastic feel of comics can just sort of get away with that. Like, you know what? Don't let's not worry about the small stuff. Maybe a character mentions how weird it is every once in a while that people love the FF and hate the X-Men. But let's not worry about it. Whereas in the MCU, it's like it's more grounded. It's more realistic. I feel like that would kind of have to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the comics also where you have so many different titles being published at the same time, I think like not everybody like probably very few people are reading literally every marvel comic that comes out at once right and so people i my impression is kind of have the titles they follow and not everything has to always line up perfectly i know they do these massive crossover events from time to time right where you maybe you kind of have to square the circle there but you get away with more in terms of being like well this is kind of this storyline this is that storyline and not everybody's consuming all of it. Whereas I feel a little bit with the MCU, granted, I'm sure there are more people who kind of just watch the movie here and there and and maybe some of the TV shows or none of the TV shows. But it, I mean, certainly the people I have contact with mostly see everything. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you can't talk to me about the movie until 45 days after it's in the theater so I can watch it at home. But like, you know, I I think they also have kind of, put this idea that like everything's so connected and so self-referential and like kind of cross referential and whatever that it's a little harder to fit the X-Men into that world in a way where, you know, you don't have to worry about some of that stuff in the same way, you know? Um, Whereas when they made the X-Men movies, it's like, well, that's the only thing to worry about. And the comics, it's like, there's just, I like an idea of maybe if the movies and shows become a little bit more like the comics where it's like you, you it doesn't feel like you necessarily need to see everything to get everything. You know, I, th- mm-hmm. I think I, I would like that, um, you know, because the series I've enjoyed the most recently are like Moon Knight and Miss Marvel, where it's just like the rest of the world exists, but it's like it's not that big a deal within the context of the show outside mm-hmm. of like Miss Marvel really loving uh, Captain Marvel, you know, and whatnot. Yeah, no, I, I love that as well. That's something I've really enjoyed about some aspects of Phase 4 and the shows. Like, everyone knows that they're in the Marvel Universe. Like, they all remember the the snap, and they right. remember the Chitari thing from the first Avengers movie. But they're basically just doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. And, like, right. you know, Kamala's dealing with her own surprising reference to an old 90s comic that no one remembers, or, or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, and that... I, I agree. I think that is a little more suited for perhaps bringing the X-Men in. Like, it's all, it's going to be imperfect no matter how they do it, but I think we're in a better place to do that now than we would have been, say, back in Phase 2. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and and for me, I think also part of it is, like, it's funny. I, I have I've had my one big horse that I've... I, I've had my one big sort of hill that I'm dying on, which is that I just... 
you know, people love to fan cast all this kind of stuff. And one of the big questions is always, you know, who should be the new Wolverine? I think Hugh Jackman is one of the most perfect castings I've ever seen. I don't, I'm, let that just be Logan, you know, like, and, but he's such a popular character. I'm sure he's going to get recast. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's, that, and that, that that's more on the Hollywood side of it than the actual X-Men character, comic story side of it. But it's my little, you know, yeah. kill I've got to die on. No, uh, Jackman was so good as Wolverine. I mean, admittedly, he was about a foot too tall. Yeah. What can you do? Uh, but aside from that, yeah, no, he just was Logan. He was James Howlett straight up. And I think in the movie Logan, like him getting a conclusion to that arc, that was just that just really nailed that. That was clear. Like, oh, no, no, he, he works for every era of Logan and that's fine. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard, though, because I love Wolverine. Don't get me wrong. Uh, or rather, I love that Wolverine. My favorite Wolverine is Laura Kinney, ex- formerly X-23. But mm, yes. um, but if you really want to dive into kind of the, the metaphor, the nuts and bolts of the philosophical implications, like, Logan's not necessarily going to be your best character, and I think sometimes he can get in the way of that. That's why I always yeah. like him when he's a little bit more of a, like, an important character, sure, but not the most important character. Like, even in the Wolverine and the X-Men cartoon... You know, he wasn't like he, he wasn't getting all of the screen time. He was just the character kind of that brought things together in that show. Yeah. And it did feel sometimes I think, Paul, you made a comment that it, like some of the movies sometimes felt like it was like Wolverine and the X-Men, yeah. you know, kind of like how it was like Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey. And right. Just the Birds of Prey movie. Yeah. It's like um, let the title characters be the title characters and then let the sort of, you know, flavorful, colorful character be, like, the one who's adding some flavor and color and, you know, is like, you're a dick, you know? Um, yeah. I think we can say that one time, right? Um, yeah. That <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, I, I, I do think they definitely, like, they super centralized Wolverine, and I think some of the best X-Men stuff doesn't do that to the same extent. I do think Wolverine and the X-Men is a great series, mm-hmm. and, but it it it's notable for, like, how much different that is than the 90s series where, you know, he he did kind of come and go a little bit and, like, there was this tension and it wasn't a tension where it was like, oh, Scott's just the really boring vanilla dude and, like, Wolverine's clearly the only one you're meant to kind of really, you know, relate to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think you could definitely do plenty of X-Men without Wolverine and then maybe you could have Wolverine show up later, you know, or you could have a Wolverine series where he's not even with the X-Men and then he can show up later. You know, and I don't know. I, I, I think there's ways to kind of decentralize the character and also please hire a short actor. Like, short <laughs> actors don't get to play heroes. You know, Hugh Jackman's performance was fantastic. But, like, that was one of the things. I didn't really know Wolverine that well. I was like, oh, this is great. And Logan's like, yeah, he's not, you know, he doesn't look like Wolverine. And it's like, <laughs> actually, I don't remember whether that was a specific comment. But, like, but it's true. You know, it's like he doesn't look like Wolverine in the comics. He doesn't look like Wolverine in the animated shows. He just gives a great performance, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, the performance just was so good from the start. I still remember the casting of that first X-Men movie especially. Like, as much as I I did not like Halle Berry's performance of Storm specifically, like, Mm. everybody else, I think, was just cast perfectly. Even Rogue, who was so, so different from her comics Mm -hmm. persona. Like, it was still a great take on the character. Um, They just didn't let her do much. (laughs) Yeah, true, especially some of the later (laughs) things. But... No, I think I think what we're getting to here is a good point, though, that 
X-Men is inherently an ensemble cast. It has to be. Yeah. Yeah. And part of that is just that it's fun to have all these characters bounce off of each other. You also get a bu- you get more perspectives and origins. Like I love that the most memorable cast of X-Men from the mid 70s was so international. Um I love mm-hmm. that X-Men historically has at least as it went on been very gender diverse getting a little more gender diverse we just got our first canonically trans mutant like a week ago and i'm very excited nice Um, nice but but yeah it has to be an ensemble and i think for me the idea of found family like a Mm. found family of outcasts being as valid as any other form of family is also inherent to the concept of x-men like you know you have you have the fantastic four who are a literal family yeah but then you have X-Men being all about family of choice, family of support, and that's yeah. that's one of the most beautiful things about it, I think. For sure. I really think so, and I know the movies, I think, really emphasize this, where, like, I, I think pe- people often talk about, like, what is the actual metaphor of the X-Men, and, you know, I think people like to look at it and be like, oh, originally it was, prof- it was you know, M- Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, and that's been, I think, pretty well debunked. Uh, I think that, that definitely in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of ways in which it was meant to, especially actually in more recent movies, there's a lot of ways in which it became a, a metaphor for LGBT stuff. And then I think especially the found family. I know for me, that was one thing that really resonated a lot. And one thing I think also we're getting at here, though, is that like one thing I'm very well aware of is I feel like if you ask most people who aren't hardcore fans, name the X-Men, like out of these, there's what, uh, there's more than 100 X-Men characters out there, right? Oh, so many people have been on the team. And that's if you just say X-Men, let alone X-Force, X-Factor, Generation X. (laughs) And yet probably, (laughs) I would imagine if we did like a family feud style game, we'd get like, you know, the the big ones, Magneto, Professor X, uh... Mystique, Kitty Pride, you know, Wolverine, Jean Grey, Cyclops. There's probably like 10 or 12 who a lot of people are all going to say those same ones. I would love it if maybe we had like those as like background characters. But yeah, it was an ensemble show mostly about maybe a next generation of X-Men, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I think I'm- if you asked it Family Feud style, more people would say Spider-Man than Kitty Pride. <laughs> yeah, that's actually probably true. I, I actually saw true. there was some Family Feud thing where they asked to name a superhero with a cape. And Spider-Man was, like, the fifth answer. And I was like, what? And then another one where they asked, like, superheroes can fly and Batman was... I mean, I guess he's got the Batwing. But, like, you know, people... I think we forget that, like, the general population, you know, broadly... Which is the people who go see the movies in general, right? It's like, it is a very... These movies make billions of dollars. Like, a lot of people are seeing them. And a lot of those people aren't super into everything, right? Like, Mm -hmm. aren't going to be able to name more than one or two or three characters a lot of the time. And it would be great to see more characters get more screen time. I just want to insert my idea for, like, not how they would fit in the universe, but how I think they should be delivered. Is, I think, Mm -hmm. definitely, like, you can do a movie, but I think... A show, a series is such a better format for a team like the X-Men. And 100%. specifically, I would set it up like the way they did Lost, like especially like the first season where you have a narrative in the present day, but then each episode you kind of focus on one character and maybe show kind of some of their some flashbacks of their backstory or something like that, or just some way you're focusing on one character more. And like each episode is a different character as sort of like a principal and you kind of work your way through, through the team. I I love that concept. And you know, uh, did either of you happen to see the show, the gifted? Mm. I saw, is that the one that's, that starts at the mental hospital? 
Uh, that's the New Mutants. Uh, that's new, okay. a movie, which I will stand up for that movie that everyone hates. Thank you. No, no, it, thank you. I, it, I not the movie. It. No, there, there's a TV show as well that's mostly about – it's about how one of them is both mentally ill and a mutant. Oh, and there's Legion. A lot of quest- mm. Legion. That's yes. the one I'm thinking of. Tara. Legion Sorry, okay. also phenomenal. Loved it so much. But The Gifted, I feel like – I'm just going to say controversial things. I just said I love the New Mutants, and now I'm going to say I think The Gifted is in some ways the best X-Men show. Oh, wow. It is not sure. necessarily a good television show. I want to emphasize that. Okay. <laughs> there are a number of times where you're like, wait, people don't talk that way. And if you guys just had a conversation, we could have just skipped the last four episodes. It would have been fine. But um, it kind it sounds of— sounds like gossip. You know? I was going <laughs> to say, speaking of Multiverse of Madness or, <laughs> or Spider-Man or, like, you know, every movie that happens. But. Oh, just talk to each other, people. Just talk to each other. <laughs> but The Gifted, it does a little bit of that. It's an ensemble cast of mostly sort of B and C-level X-Men characters. Mm. Like, the most prominent member of the main cast is Polaris, mm. who's not really all that prominent. But we do get a lot of backstory and focus on the individual characters that also shows us a lot more of the history of this world, of how we got to a place where, like, the Sentinel program was being developed and where there was an equivalent of the Department of Homeland Security going after mutants. And it works really, really well. It gets the metaphor really, really well. Uh, The the premise is, yeah, there's this... uh, prosecutor played by vampire bill from that show that had vampire bill true blood i think i haven't seen it anyway um he's uh he finds out that his kids are mutants uh Mm. and so they go on the run and hook up with an underground group of mutants as well uh and it um it actually it's a very different take on the x-men you're not really seeing any costumes you're not seeing any of those major major characters but i think it gets the metaphor in a way that really fits the modern era an era that, you know, you you will inevitably have to grapple with, but the Holocaust was so long ago, or yeah. whatever. So that, I think, would be a great model to use to kind of update this whole thing, but only some people saw it, and then it got canceled, and it wasn't right. really, I think, yeah. successful enough. Yeah, I, I guess it makes me want to go back and check that out. I think that can definitely go on a to-watch list for me. I, I think what I would like to see, and Paul, I can already tell you, starting to roll your eyes about this— I love I high school what you're shows. Saying yet. I, oh, I, I I love shows about school, and I oh. you know I like the Ms. Marvel. I've enjoyed like the kind of teenagerness of it, and the like. I I've always kind of wanted to see. Let's actually spend some time in the Xavier School and have it be the kind of like, okay, we're off killing dragons and also trying to get our homework done and also try to figure like you know like I I love that like which is scarier, the evil monster or asking someone to prom. Um, so I think that you know th- there's a lot of ways to approach it. Let's go back, though, to I think what is going to be one of the biggest questions and I think a really interesting ethical one for us, um, which is this idea of, okay, when you have a story that is to a large extent grounded in a period of time, what do you do with it? Because I certainly have a lot of thoughts on what would it mean especially to update the Magneto story um, because I think in, in, you know he is, he, his story is tied to a particular moment in time, and I think there have been some discussions about like could you therefore tell a, how it's a similar story? On the other hand, also, he's one of the only pieces of – he's one of the only kind of actual Jewish representation we have in comics right now. He's not in the MCU. Um, so, yeah, what – Miles, what's your take on uh, – like, I, I have a, I have an idea for it, but I'm curious for you. What What's your take on how to bring a Magneto into a story in, 2020, in the 2020s? Well, the simplest explanation I heard is just you add in a little tidbit that mutants live a long time. 
Yeah. Problem solved. Uh, back in the Silver Age, they were canonically stronger and more durable than humans. Everyone forgot about that. But the idea of the X factor, the X gene, inherently just having, like, a couple unified things to it, you can do. But that also, I realize that's, like, an almost too easy answer to the question. Because still, that is getting further and further back into history. I mean, I guess the question then becomes, do you really need a Magneto figure? And mm. do you really need an Xavier figure? Right. Does the mutant metaphor work without these sort of philosophical poles built right into it? And I I think it can. I, I do think it yeah. can. Um, I think that in any historical era, you're going to find easy parallels, whether it's, you know, the civil rights era, whether it's more of a gay rights metaphor, like in especially X-Men 2. Um, certainly, boy howdy, do we have plenty of kinds of oppression going on right now uh, in the last few weeks, for instance. Um and so I think the main thing is if you're going to update it, then update it. It's almost too easy to be like, oh, well, Nazis are terrible. Everyone hates Nazis because everyone, well, most people hate <laughs> Nazis. Like, they're, they're easy villains because they're terrible in every way. Right. Disney doesn't have to worry about alienating too many people if they show Nazis as the bad guys. But, you know, what if we do? I mean— X-Men is inherently political, and X-Men is inherently left-wing. I will, I will live and die uh, by that statement. That's just the nature of it. And so, what if we do, you know, uh, show modern bigotries, many of which are totally accepted as being kind of okay as the bad guys? Like, yeah. everybody forgets that that famous cover of Captain America punching Hitler, that was before America joined the war. That was mm. very controversial at the time. Oh, yeah. And I think... If you're going to do a good X-Men story, you have to be a little controversial. You can't just, you know, ha have these cartoonish, unbelievable villains that don't necessarily represent anyone. Because the things they represent, like the concept of bigotry, the concept of oppression of minorities, we have so much of that still, and you need to address it. You mm -hmm. need to just, I mean, I know Disney's goal is to appeal to as broad a demographic as possible, so as to make as many dollars as possible, but you got to take a stand. And we're starting to see a little bit of that. Falcon and Winter Soldier did that a little bit and then backed off a yeah. little. Ms. Marvel seems to be a little braver about that, which I appreciate. The, the British aren't coming off very well in that show, certainly. I sure <laughs> don't want to have too many spoilers, but yeah, they're, 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 they're not pulling too many punches. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe that's something Disney would be willing to do, but I think that is what you do. I think you just say, oh, what's happening to mutants? It's like the way, say, trans people are being targeted. Like, that's a real thing. Mutants work best when they're not strictly a metaphor, but when they're a metaphor that also coexists with the oppression of the real world. You know, when we see, like, Iceman discriminated against because he's gay as well as because he's a mutant, or Storm being discriminated against because she's black as well as, as being a mutant. Like, right. you can't just replace the, uh, the oppression and the bigotry with something more whiz-bang, explodey. Like, right. that stuff all exists in the real world. Like, we were talking about that. Marvel works so well, and the X-Men works so well because they're in the real world. So don't shy away from it. So that's my very long-winded answer, I guess. Well, and, uh, I have a theory that I want to get to, but just, just going off what you're saying, one of the first things that come to mind is that, you know, intersectionality is a concept that we talk about now all the time that wasn't really being talked about at all in the 60s, let alone for most of the history of the X-Men. That might even be a related thing of, of where it's about... Um, okay, all of the mutants deal with this oppression as being mutants, but also like, you know, 
mutants who are black are dealing with racism that white mutants aren't understanding and like and gender and all that kind of thing so that that alone could be a fun thing to play with mm -hmm. of like like how those different like that there are some who are like no we're all mutants we're all in this together and some of the other mutants are like yeah no you don't I, I, we're not all in this together as long as i have these problems that you don't mm -hmm. and stuff like that the uh, Morlocks uh, have always oh, yeah. are, are still a metaphor in X-Men, but they've always worked well for that, I think. The mutants who cannot mm. pass. Sure. Mm. For sure. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, I, I have a bunch that I can say on this, but Paul, I want to let you jump in before I, I, I just kind of go off. <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, – I don't think you could do the X-Men without Xavier, but I think you can do mutants without Xavier. I think you can definitely do mutants without Magneto. You know, um, I mean, I guess you could do the X-Men and I don't know, uh, but mostly like X-Men without Xavier is like post Xavier, right? Like, like yeah. they got the name from somewhere. Right? <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> I think it would be a little weird to be like, no, nope, he never existed. Um, but, you know, I guess you could. Um, I, I do think Iceman would be a good character to be kind of one of the, the principal characters. I know at least in some tellings, he was like one of the original X-Men. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I really do like the idea of using, you know, real-world bigotry a little bit more. Um, I feel like they will touch on that, but I am very skeptical that they will lean hard into it. Uh, it would be great, but, like, you know, show me and I'll believe it, you know. But, uh, but yeah, I do think that would be a good thing to do. Honestly, I figure a lot of it will have to do with the medium, you know. If it's a mm. huge tentpole billion-dollar movie – they're probably going to be a lot more conservative than if it is more of a smaller TV show. Absolutely. You know, I, I think <clears throat> it's a question I've been wrestling with for a while. And I, I, I'm going to kind of talk about how I'm wrestling with it, but also how you all have kind of blown my mind on it some. Because, I mean, for me, Magneto is a character I really love. And I'm someone who, I, I've talked about it before, my, my father's family is Jewish. I'm religiously, I'm not Jewish, but I've experienced anti-Semitism myself. It, it's something, it's, and I hate that there are so few, there's so little Jewish representation in superheroes in general, especially the MCU, we got some with Moon Knight, but we certainly could have gotten a lot more with Moon Knight. And so there's a there's a part of me that, on the one hand, thinks if we have Magneto, he has to be the Magneto of the Holocaust. We can't erase that story. On the other hand, as as much as I want to understand the Holocaust as a singular event of tragedy that happened in history, it also I mean I think you can talk about differences of degree, but there have been other moments of utter horror like it and the idea of a person who experiences something like apartheid in South Africa or genocide in any one of the many places where it's happening in the world being trans in America today being one of those possibilities and the idea that someone else could have a similar experience at, at one point I was like so why not just have Mag have there be Magneto but he comes from a different perspective I think if the MCU had given us five awesome Jewish characters by now, I'd be okay. I would be on board with that. Without it, I think where I kind of come to is something where I would love to see like a the next generation of leadership of the kind of um, hopefully it would be a sort of siblinghood, get away from the brotherhood idea, mm -hmm. but like the side that's upholding mutant supremacy and mutant singularity, singularity, you know, um, uh, but mutants for themselves coming from an experience like Magneto's, but not necessarily the Holocaust, but there still is a Magneto figure there who's who's a, a mentor to him in some way. Like, you know, I think there could be, or not just him. But then actually, as we started talking about, like, yeah, what if we could have a mutant story that wasn't just this same idea of, you know, this one level of what do you do? 
And part of my thought is, well, wait a minute, what if we're two or three generations in? Now, what happens every time you've got an oppressed community, especially if it's a different racial community, now the question's of assimilation, you know? And could you actually make it that make that a kind of a central story where it is people are, remem- maybe Professor X and Magneto are still around, or maybe they're just remembered and they've passed away, but now the real kind of focus is more this, like, do we allow, you know, how much do we kind of try to keep the old ways alive versus, you know, being integrated into society? And um, I, I think, yeah, I think there's, there's a lots of ways where you could make it a different question instead of the Professor X versus Magneto conflict, mm. but still have a very interesting conflict there. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's that's a, a really important question in, in X-Men all the time. Like, if you, if you boil it down, even to something more basic than the Magneto-Xavier concept, it's if you are a member of a group that the world treats badly, how do you respond to that? Right. And yeah, that doesn't have to be, you know, mutant supremacy versus, you know, full peace and, and kumbaya right. and integration. It could, it, that could be in any number of levels. It could be, like you said, you know, do we assimilate? Do we keep our own culture distinct? You know, kind of like Krakow is doing right now. I, I would love mm-hmm. to see something like that. It's, yeah, it's not like there are two answers to how do you respond to that, right? And yeah. it's not like all the possible answers exist along a continuum between those two poles either. That's not right. like there's lots of complexity. There's creativity possible, right? There's like any number of ways you can approach things. And so seeing instead of like this either A or B or somewhere in between, which I guess I didn't leave enough letters there, uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it could be a lot of different possible answers. I was just thinking while, while you were talking about all that, like what if the mutants were around for this whole time or for an extended period of time, some of them are adults, but it's been covered up. Most of them have been abducted and imprisoned, maybe. Like, maybe especially Mm. since, like, the Sokovia Accords or whatever. Or, you know, maybe there's basically a superhero or a a mutant registration act, but not, like, not one that the public knows about, right? Just like the governments have been doing this. Like, Mm -hmm. there's ways you could, you know, and then maybe there's mutants who were subjected to that, and then there were other mutants who were passing... And, like, nobody was talking about them because they weren't right. out as mutants, right? And they, they weren't recognized as mutants. And um, and then maybe it's more about kind of mutants coming out, um, however, you know, however you want to see that metaphor, like, just being known about publicly, right? And the public's right. changing understanding of, of what mutants are and kind of putting that within the context of, like, okay, well, you know, we did have the Avengers save the world, but also, like, uh, they did a bunch, you know... There have been superpowered people doing bad things. And so, like, collectively, you know, it's kind of unclear how the public feels about everybody, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think you could even have, you could even play with the tendency for folks to generalize about entire populations based on individual experiences. Like, sure. maybe one mutant does something bad, mm-hmm. and thus yeah. all mutants are painted with, you know, with, with that brush. And that leads to, well, they're clearly all the same. They're not like Captain America, they're not right. like Thor or whatever. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, mean, I kind of like that idea. I mean, to some extent, that's the story of, of Logan in a lot. Like, I've always mm-hmm. – one thing I love about the movie Logan is it kind of feels like to some extent Magneto was right, you know, that Professor X has some bad days and that's just enough for the for the whole world. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was uh, – oh, so good. When part of what it gets me thinking about is, you know, most of the times when we see mutants, we're living fairly soon after the world has found out about it. I'm like I'm really curious in a story where it'd be about kind of Paul. I think this is kind of where you're going. Um, yeah, like what we're now dealing with is like the third and fourth generation of mutants, you know, mm-hmm. and like 
I don't know what's been established in comics about like, yeah, if a mutant and a non-mutant have a kid, like, is the kid going to be a mutant or is the kid not? And like, what hap if this is genetic to some extent, like, yeah, what happens when we're now four generations in and who is a mutant, who is not, who is a, you know, our words like half breed being tossed around and in insulting ways or mm -hmm. like, is that, is that something that comic, because we, we're far enough now along the comics, there probably will be like, you know, three, four, gener like Magneto had kids, but they have kids yep. and they, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is that's definitely been addressed. That was something that um, uh, I'll, I'll keep coming back to Grant Morrison. Their run was uh, was was groundbreaking, and uh, one of the central parts of that run that had been alluded to before, but they really focused on, was the idea that mutants are inevitable. That mutants <laughs> are in fact destined to replace humans, and so then mm. you have humanity freaking out about this, freaking out about... I mean, there have even been a couple issues. We just covered one on our podcast where some bigoted human says something like, oh, are the mutants going to come for our women? Are they going to erase our species? Which is, of course, kind of similar to some of the white supremacist rhetoric yeah. that we hear right. that we hear today. And so, uh, yeah. No, I think um, that is... That's a, a really fascinating thing to, to deal with, the idea of, okay, like, does another group becoming more prominent, like does that endanger the group that is used to being prominent? Does the idea yeah. of, you know, giving up some societal space to something new that you don't understand, like, does that scare people? Can people move past that? Can they learn to accept change? Which is, you know, the other big thing that X-Men's all about, which is the inevitability of change and how, and how you deal with it. Mm. Of course, then Marvel kind of chickened out and depowered all but 198 mutants back in the House of M days, and so <laughs> yeah. then the metaphor got really weird for a while. But yeah, I mean, I love that Mor that Morrison was just like, "Hey, let's let's take this to its logical conclusion." I mean, the boys is a is a very different kind of story that's much more cynical. But one of the things that I I always loved about the world that the boys creates, and I won't spoil anything here, is just a kind of general world building. But they established very early on that in this world where a significant amount of the population is significantly more power than everyone else, things like the Olympics are meaningless. Because it's like, it's like if you're not a powered person, who cares how fast you can run? Who cares how high you can jump? You know, and that it, 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 it there's this interesting thing that I've kind of created of like, what, how do you measure achievement if you are this kind of at least biologically a second class citizen? And what does that look like? And how does that play into a lot of the, the oppressions of our own world and stuff like that? Mm -hmm. I'm skeptical that that's actually how things would play out, because mm -hmm. like we, I mean we we do have various sort of like groups of competition, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like in our own world, that um, right? I don't know, but whatever. I won't <laughs> go too yeah. deep into that. But but yeah, I I do I think with the whole sort of like replacement thing, I I think that's something to be. Um, like, I think it's a very interesting idea, but also I would want to be very careful that, like, I wasn't, like, feeding the fuel to the, you know, yeah. people who believe in this whole replacement <laughs> theory nonsense, you know, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. with, like, because it's like, then you probably are going to have mutants who are like, yes, that is what is happening, and we think it's good, you know, whereas, like, in the real world, like, that's not really a thing, right? right. Like. <laughs> right that's the thing and there's people who say it is but it's like mm, that's no that's not the thing the thing is right. like not replacement it's like you know um yeah, you, you know you don't kind of want you don't you don't there want there to be like i mean granted it's not 
you can't always blame people for what they do with art, but the way like a lot of right wing cops and stuff like that have adopted the Punisher symbol, right? You don't want to like create another thing like that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think you know, I mean, if 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 you have control over the the narrative, in ter- especially in terms of a movie or a TV show, um, where you're going to keep that moment to moment control, and you, and people won't have like hundreds and hundreds mm-hmm. of issues to kind of pick and choose their right. own philosophy from. Right. I think you could make that work. I mean, and I think you could just make it clear, like, hey, these people who are worried about being replaced, they're missing the point. The point is that there are more different kinds of people, and that's cool, and they yeah. are not lesser. Like, yeah. being, you know, a non-mutant doesn't mean there's nothing interesting about you. It just means, like, find the things that are interesting about you because everybody has them. Yeah. Which is hard because, I mean, you know, there are mutants and non-mutants, and that is very much a Boolean state. Like, you're one or the other. Yeah. Right. But I think, like, you know, you could really focus on kind of that that lesson of it. Because mutants all have different powers, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they all do totally different things. They're not just right. all this same type of super being. So, you know, carry that to its logical conclusion and remind yourself, like, oh, everybody's got stuff that makes them fascinating and different and unique and, like, nobody else in the world, even if they can't shoot beams of force out of their eyes. Yeah. Well, and that's what I was kind of saying about the multi-generational thing is, like, you know, in our own world, like— a hundred years ago, racial categories were a lot more distinct than they are today, just because there has been so much, you know, like just mixing and, and, and the like. And so, and that would also be an interesting thing of what if it isn't like mutant or non-mutant, but what if you had like, you know, all mm. these different degrees of how much mutant are you? Yeah. Uh, one, one thing I just want to throw in is that I think having compelling non-mutant characters would be an important part of that um, yes. sort of equation, right? Where not like, oh, the only mutant non-mutant is like Senator Kelly and like he wants to kill all the mutants, you know? And then there's like yeah. some of the mutants have parents who are not mutants and like they have they barely have anything to do with the story. Like actually having some more, you know, mm-hmm. non-mutant characters who, who have personalities and have things about them, right? And are good at certain things and maybe not as good at other things or whatever. And, and I think then you could um, tell that story, I think, in, in a way that's going to kind of work a little. Mm-hmm. Also, my personal preference, maybe we don't have our hero, like the heroiest of heroes, use mind control and the denial of agency of others as the way to be a hero. Sure, sure. Yeah. God, I hate Professor X for that reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back in the Silver Age, that really was his go-to. Like, oh, we beat the villain. Time to wipe their mind. And, you know, the comics certainly addressed that. Like, the Onslaught mm-hmm. event in the 90s really dug into a lot of his dark side. It turned his dark side into basically a giant psychic mecha that fought everybody. It was a whole mm-hmm. thing. Um yeah, and it, certainly there are ethical considerations to be considered with Xavier's, like, with any telepath right there. Yeah. But, yeah, it's it's too easy to make it just the the Chuck and Eric show, uh, be mm-hmm. it philosophically, be it, like, just in terms of them each leading their own mutant side, or be it just, like, you know, the ethics of those powers. And, right. yeah. Let's, and let's they told that story, that. right? Like, yeah. yeah. So, like, tell another story. You mm-hmm. had four actors of all very high quality do a very great job playing those characters. Like, we can, yeah. we can move on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we could spend a lot of time on this. I do want us to start wrapping up. So, Miles, let me ask you this. Um, what is one story, like either a story arc or a question that gets explored or a character that you've never seen on screen that you think would be really interesting to see in this kind of new age of MCU and X-Men coming together? That is a very good question. Um... So we've sort of seen one of them. We've sort of seen one of my favorites, uh, which is God Loves, Man Kills. That was a Chris Claremont graphic novel in the 80s. It was a standalone story. 
and it was about a uh, an evangelist, uh, an evangelist um, preacher who basically started a crusade against mutants, and how they dealt with that, how you deal with it when somebody who is respect in this respected role is fomenting hate, and how when everyone is you know agreeing with that, how do you respond to that? Do you literally fight back like Magneto tries to in that story? Do you try to change people's hearts and minds the way Kitty Pride does in that story, etc.? Et um, that was partially adapted into the second X-Men movie, uh, except we replaced religion, uh, we replaced, you know, that kind of uh, bigoted aspect, bigoted version of religion with essentially the Homeland Security Act, um, which mm-hmm. was timely and cool. But I would like to see something like that when it's not just about, you know, faceless government agents and it's actually about respected people within the communities of the mainstream uh, going after mutants. I don't know, religion fermenting hate and having more governmental power than they should, like, <laughs> it doesn't really ring true to our own world, so <laughs> yeah, I you're guess right. maybe. It could never happen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that is, that's a good one. Um, I would also love to see myself a, let's just take it back to school, let's have it... Let's have the turmoil of adolescence be intermingled with the whole metaphor. X-Men Evolution did that very well in a lot of ways, but that was a long time ago. That was animated. That was for a a much, uh, that was for a pretty young audience. Let's see some more of that. Let's especially see that with modern youth culture. Mm. We could have such fascinating overlaps and intersections. Don't just take it back to like, it's Magneto and Xavier again, and the same few X-Men again, like, no, let's see let's see some kids exploring their mutancy while watching TikTok videos that I am too old to understand. It would be great. Y- y- Euphoria with mutant powers. I like it. Oh man, Euphoria X? Yeah, let's do it. Well, especially cuz like I mean, if there's a if the, I think if there's a population that I'm starting to learn much more about just how beleaguered and horrible their lives are, not that sounds wrong, but like just how much stress they go through as teachers. So like I could often even see that like the focus be more on the te- like oh god, well well, it doesn't have to be more, though, right? You could do both. You yeah, can tell yeah, the stories of the adults and the you know the teenagers and maybe some like younger kids as well, all in the same story. Um, exactly. I'm going to watch that tomorrow. Uh, it's called Stranger Things, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's definitely actually. very true. Very I, true. You know, I mean, it it proves that that's a story that you can tell well. You know, yeah, definitely. Uh, Paul, what about you? What's kind of any other last thoughts or uh, you have about the MCU coming back into X Men world? Yeah, um, or or the the X Men coming into the MCU, like the MCU yeah. to me on some level has kind of like just gotten a little too much of whatever it is. Like I've I've enjoyed parts of Phase Four a lot, and really really not enjoyed other parts. You know, and um, especially last episodes of TV shows, and like uh, there's only you know only one of the movies that I really love. Um, so I, I kind of, like, I already want to see, like, more series from them just because I have been enjoying the series more, you know, mm-hmm. than, than the features. And I really do feel like the X-Men um, and mutant stories in general are harder to tell in a movie form, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I, I like the idea of showing things going on at the school, you know, at the Xavier Institute, if, if you're going to have Xavier in it. But maybe you're not doing, like, big world-saving things. Maybe that's how you kind of gracefully introduce mutants into the world, is maybe 
you know, maybe Cyclops and Wolverine and Storm and, and Jean Grey and, and maybe Rogue. I, I, I feel like Rogue should be one of the more powerful characters, not like a nerfed teenager, but whatever. Um, maybe they're off doing stuff, but that's like off screen stuff. You know, yeah. and like maybe they interact with the Avengers and they show up here and there, but like mostly you're focusing on kind of smaller level stuff that's like local. And I think you could tell a really good story that way. One of the reasons that the New Mutants movie really worked for me was that it felt like it was so self contained. And I know mm. some people didn't love that about it. And like maybe some of that was like pandemic related and they're like, oh, well, we just can't shoot scenes with 100 people in them. But like, I don't know. That really works for me. I, I like a small contained story, um, especially when it's a movie. I like it to be over a shorter timeline and be kind of like narrow in focus. When it's a series, you can go with a longer timeline. You can kind of let things play out a little more slow burn. But also, I think not trying to go for some big like, you don't have to save the world every time. You know, like yeah. there are important things that happen that don't involve saving the world. You know, yeah. and, and I do really like the idea of seeing kind of, you know, more of today's youth culture or whatever like i mean we we have like magic devices like everybody does you know like at our fingertips and and how that kind of relates to like you know i mean some of the things we could do with like a phone are more than some of the superpowers that characters had you know in 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 various stories oh 100 percent. you know what i mean and so kind of i don't know juxtaposing kind of technology with um you know, like powers, basically, I think is is an interesting thing to play with as well. So, you know, I, I think we've come up with a good idea for a series here. Let's pitch it. Yeah, let's just make it happen. I, I'll write I like it. Minute. I think the more I think about it, the more I'm like, yeah, don't don't bring X people into the MCU. Instead, like, I, I, I'm ready to take a break from 616 for a while, mm. you know, May, oh, and sure. maybe let's, yeah. you know, and maybe like it's, between it's all the different. Say again? Oh, it is 616, right? They said that in Doctor Strange, yeah. which felt which, weird yeah. to me. But it sorry. doesn't work. Yeah, it breaks the whole concept of the multiverse. I'm fully against it. Okay, but, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. But, yes. but, but, you know, point. And, like, there are all these interesting kids that are getting introduced and all these things. So how about if, like, you know, the, the, the friend of Spider-Man or, like, Bruno from his Mar- – like, one of them falls through into the other universe mm, mm-hmm. and winds up realizing, like, that they're a mutant. And so they hang out at the school for a while and, sure. like – Eventually, there's going to be a movie where, like, some of our heroes from 616 come on over. I hit the microphone. Some of our heroes from 616 come on over there. But for now, let's just tell a story that's mostly based in that other world. Yeah. So, well, this has been so great. Uh, Miles, for those of us who uh, want to hear more about your theories on the X-Men and uh, dive more into the comics and what you and Jay are talking about, where can they find you? So we can be found at explainthexmen.com. That is, of course, X-Plane, no E at the beginning, because it is a, uh, it's legally required if you do any sort of X-Men fan thing that you have an X pun <laughs> somewhere in the title. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're on all the various uh, podcatchers, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, all, all that good stuff. Um, we have, I think, 370-something episodes at this point. Uh, wow. Some people like to start at the beginning. We like to think you can jump in wherever. I'm not sure how feasible that is, but, you know, let's do our first episode. If you like it, maybe you will like more. Nice, nice. That's awesome. And Paul, what about what about you? What are you up to these days? Yeah, I'm Zen Madman on all the the places with the things. Um, you know, YouTube, Twitch, Twitter. I've just today completed 30 days in a row of streaming like poker study with uh, Poker Solver online, which was a lot of fun. Also exhausting. Another reminder to myself: don't do challenges where literally every single day I'm doing a thing that involves like a lot. 
Um, but that was fun, and the VODs are up, and uh, they'll probably be on YouTube as Zen Madman Poker. Um, yeah, that's about it. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, definitely check all that stuff out. And of course, I am The Ethical Panda. You can find all the podcasting I do under theethicalpanda.com. Most importantly there, on that website, you'll find all the ways to contact us. We love feedback. What do you think? What are your theories about how the X-Men and the MCU are going to fit together? What do you want to see? What do you not want to see? What do you like about the stuff we talked about or disagree? Please send us that feedback. Uh, TheEthicalPanda.com. There you'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, email, all different ways to find us. Carri- eh, no carrier pigeon. It's not really nice to the birds. But, you know, if you, can, if you can find a robotic carrier pigeon, we'd be very happy to take it. So... All those things, check that out. Check out all the great stuff that my guests are doing. And most importantly, as fans, let's be good to each other.